the Rocks Back Pages podcast. This is Mark Pringle depping for an absent Barney Hoskins. I'm here in Hammersmith with Jasper Murison Bowie. Hello, Mark. And with our special guest, the marvellous Sylvia Patterson. Well, hello. Smash hits, enemy and beyond. Welcome, Sylvia. So, I mean, tell us about sort of how, when did pop music first light you up? Well, it would have been... I feel very, very privileged to have been 10 years old in 1975. Right. Because that's when the Bee Gees were the biggest band in the universe yeah. to me. And also, it was on the cusp of Greece emerging. Oh, right. I think that was 78, is that right? So, you, Travolta and the likes. It was Travolta and the likes. And Elton was enormous. Right. I was a Radio Luxembourg person at that time, uh-huh. at the age of 10, 11, under the covers with, uh, with the Luxembourg. Um, <laughs> and there was no escaping... The enormousness of certainly uh, Elton, the Bee Gees, the Eagles I loved. Right. I was, you know, it, it, there really was, um, oh, in the 70s, disco music was coming in as sure. well, uh, in a really, really big way. But um, it, would, it would per- have been... This is in Perth, yes. In Perth, in Scotland. Right. Yeah. And I think that was the start of it all, really. And then very, very quickly, 13, 14 years of age happened. And with that, again, very, very fortunate and privileged to be exactly that age when post-punk happened. Right. I was too young for the punk. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but post-punk was exactly my era. I was 14 in 1979, and the whole universe just exploded. It's fantastic. I mean, I, there is an argument that 1979 to 1982 were some of the best years of British music, sort of. That argument is entirely correct. <laughs> <laughs> um, so you, you were growing up in Perth, you got a job at DC Thompson, is that correct? That's right, yes. I was working for a dreadful magazine called Annabelle, which usually had the Queen Mum on the cover. <laughs> um, it was it was a deadly rival to the People's Friend right. was down the corridor. Uh-huh. I was 18 years of age with a really, really, absolutely ridiculous cascading 80s haircut Time. that I had to disguise before I went into work every day. <laughs> um, and then, because the Face magazine was emerging around then as mm-hmm. well in the early 80s, as we know, DC Thompson's decided it would try and put out its own rival version right. of the face, and it was called Etc., spelt wrongly. <laughs> and I managed to inveigle my way to be the music editor on that magazine. And it entirely folded in six months, because it was hopeless. Right. But that was the beginning of me doing interviews and things like that. Sure. And I would be um, insisting on putting people in the magazine like Alien Sex Fiend <laughs> and New Model Army. I'm sure that didn't when- contribute at all to it folding. <laughs> Who was your first interview out of interest? What was your first interview did? Can you remember? I think it would have been some of the the Scottish ones at the time, like Hipsway and Swans. Were they Scottish Swans? I can't remember. Alien Sex Fiend, I think, might have been the very, very first ones, though, because I I remember how nervous I was. I was passing out. I was like, three Carlsberg specials. Didn't know what I was talking about. And um, they were really quite unimpressed. With my lack of uh, professionalism, but I mean, look at the state of those those people. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Managed to get through it. They were nice to me in the end. That was the beginning of it all for me. Yeah, that's fantastic. And was it just that you always wanted to write about music, or you know, as soon as you were obsessed with music, I was just an obsessive, like like we all are. You know, like yeah. all journalists are. I was lucky enough again to have a, a really great English teacher who invented a school magazine. So it was age fourteen, fifteen when I was starting to do reviews. Right. For the school magazine, I'd be, um, and, and again, you could choose to do what I wanted, mm-hmm. and I'd be reviewing 
Iggy Pop's New Values or right. whatever Psychedelic Furs record I was yeah, like. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that had given me the calling card to go to DC Thompson's in the first place because I had written yeah. work to show them. <laughs> yes. So that, those, that was the first music journalism that I ever yeah. did was at school. Do, um, nice. DC Thompson are an interesting company because they sort of ran Scottish publishing, didn't they, to some extent? I mean, Scottish publishing... To all said, extents, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And I think you mentioned in your book that they were very Protestant as well. As, a, as a, Yes, you were not allowed to work there if you were Catholic at that time. Right. Yes. I'm not sure it's a different century, <laughs> a, different, a different dimension, but that was the case at the time. And, yeah. and, and then you, someone pointed out to you that there was a job going at Smash Hits, is that correct? That's right. I was floundering in Dundee having a horrible life and um, <laughs> a, a colleague just slipped onto my desk an advert that was in The Guardian and just said, staff writer wanted Smash It's magazine. And she just said, that's your job. Wow. And I would have been, every single fortnight, I was an mm. obsessive by that time, more so than I would have been with the NME, even yeah. because Smash It's was where all the jokes were. Yeah, yeah. yeah. You know? And I made sure that I sent them an absolute dossier of, <laughs> uh, of, a, of a letter, including... Everything practically that had that that had been printed, mm-hmm. even my schoolwork. To be honest, <laughs> yes. I was twenty at the time when I put well, as I say, the dossier into mm-hmm. them, and I had two interviews. Came down to London both times for those interviews, and um, was given the job. I mean, you uh, reading your book, which I will mention the title of that. I'm not with the band. A writer's <laughs> life lost in music. If I've got that correct, yes. which is obviously a nod to uh, Pamela De Bars, that's uh, right. I mean, yes, who was a previous guest on our podcast. <laughs> You mentioned that, in fact, that the person who wasn't too interested in the wonderful late, great Tom Hibbert was the person who found your CV. Yes, it was. um, He did the second interview and the editor at the time was, um, he was, uh, can you believe I've forgotten the man's name? That's ridiculous. (laughs) Anyway, he was the um, the art editor at the time. Right. He wasn't convinced. So he handed me over to Tom for for the next interview. And Tom said, uh, yeah. Fantastic. Give, give the job to her. So. Good. Good man. Well, I mean, you know, Tom, he... got a lot to answer for, dude, but anyway. <laughs> <laughs> but he was my hero. He yes. was my hero, yeah. you know. Yeah. I mean, marvellous writer himself, you yeah. know, and a, and a great loss to all of us. Absolutely, he? yeah, yeah. What was it like, the atmosphere at Smash Hits, working with Tom? It was, it was chaos. It was very... We were all so young. You know, Tom was older than us, mm-hmm. but the rest of us were really early 20s, mm. right. mid-20s. Um, it was like Chris Heath, people like that. Yes, Chris was a couple of years older than yeah. me. There was William Shaw. Right. There was Jackie Doyle was the art director. We were all just a bunch of not only pop fanatics, but we were all indie kids, to be honest yeah. with you. We were all Smiths fanatics, you know, yeah. um, with yeah. our stupid 80s hair and all that sort of thing. But we were really interested in, in, in pop culture yeah. too. I mean, for me, it's been a revelation because I was too I was too old and too much of a snob to like smash hits at the time. My job here at Rock's Back Page has been an absolute revelation. Wow. Those right up to the end of the 80s, maybe the first couple of years of the 90s, it was just a fantastic magazine and funny and irreverent. But also, talking about what it covers, it covered much more than simply the chart bands. You know, yes, absolutely. Yeah, and they let us get away with... Uh... Hmm. With being the indie kid that we all were, especially yeah. in the news pages, which was called Bits yeah. with, with a Z, I for a while was the Bits editor. Yeah. And yeah. I was able to get stuff in there. I'll just put the wooden tops are going in. <laughs> right. You know, Genesis Peorage is yeah. going in. That's amazing. And we could just we, we got away with, yeah. with all of that. The big wigs were nowhere to be seen. And it just kept on selling and selling and selling. As long as we had, you know, whoever it would be on the cover, say it was, what, 86 when I got there. So yeah, maybe yeah. it would have been a bit 
Bon Jovi-ish perhaps at that time. Or... <laughs> so as long as we have the Jovi sure. on the cover, we can get away with absolutely everything on yeah. the inside, yeah. That's no, a lovely it, attitude to take, that of just yeah, kind yeah. of getting to do what you want, just going along is great. Yeah, it was. It was creative freedom like I have never yeah. known to this day. It's a marvellous read. Still, I mean, that's the thing. Is in, in some ways, I think it stands up better than the serious pop press of, of, of that period, you know. And, and, Good. And, and, you know, <laughs> and just my job is just a joy. I mean, you know, William Shaw and Chris Heath, uh, Neil Tennant's one of our writers as well. Yeah. And so it's, it's just fantastic, you know. Um, do you think that that's partly to do with... I mean, in, in I'm Not With A Band, there's a bit where you write about how... There was no ulterior cynical motive at Smash Hits. There was no kind of meanness about it. Absolutely it was kind no of authentic. meanness at all. It was, um, there was an enormous amount of, of affection. Mm. And irreverence was, was what we were after. Yeah. But you weren't there to take anyone apart or to try and make anyone look stupid. We were trying to get the best out of them to actually prove to everybody that there's a sense of humour in there. Yeah, yeah. And it was our mission to to try and find that, to make them as interesting as they could possibly be. Sure. And to give them the... It was a it was a creative process, really. Uh-huh. We're going to ask you all these really silly questions. <laughs> but there's a... There's a reason behind them. To yeah. See, just use your imagination. Come with us on this, in this silliness and yeah, this irreverence, yeah. and, um, and as well as that, you know, you don't really want to be pompous, and you don't really want to be. I mean, apart from John Bon Jovi, obviously, he was the exception to, to all of those rules. <laughs> he couldn't wait to be as pompous, and, 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 and the man was a megalomaniac. So yeah. the more he was like that, the more we kind of did try to actually puncture it as much yeah. as you possibly With could. With inverted commas around yes. all the critical moments. But it was, you know, again, it was, I mean, Tom, for example, Tom Hibbert, I'm sure it was um, in a personal file or something, he asked him if he could play the Stars and Stripes on his harmonica because he <laughs> had a harmonica collection. And John Bon Jovi just looked at him and said, that's Smash Hits' idea of a music question, right? Because <laughs> <laughs> oh, we'd rather be asking him about his fabulous, you know, luscious locks or whatever. One of the pieces we're running of yours this this week is uh, George Michael, the glummest man in pop, question mark, from Smash Hits in November 87. Our audio interview on the site is going to be Adam Sweeting's interview from November 87. It's very amusing. Let me find... This is a a first clip I'll play. I don't even remember what it's like, really, to have a totally private life, so I can't even say I miss it anymore. So I went through that phase of trying to make out you were gay, didn't they? Well, I kept, they kept saying, um, I had this, actually, the, 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 um, the girl that came in just now from, uh, from Smash Hits said that, um, that, uh, boy George went on about me being closet the other day. I can't believe that. I can't believe that. I mean, I know he's not having a particularly good time at the moment or anything, and I know... It's been worse, hasn't it? <laughs> Sorry? He, he seems to have come to the worst of it. Yeah, he has. But, I mean, I've always been really supportive of him. You know, I've never been anything but present about him and it seems that he um, wants to have a go at me so he's uh, I don't know maybe it was a joke maybe it was a joke on the radio but yeah there was this whole period in the so he you, said you were, you were well he said apparently I can't tell because you know how things get like it's like, like Chinese whispers yeah. you know <laughs> but apparently he, there was this, this kind of attack there was a kind of personal attack on me but uh, I, I um, I'm totally I'm, I'm disappointed in that I'm disappointed in him for that 
So the girl from Smash It was you. You just interviewed him, which gives you a running. This is him talking. So you were the first person to tell him that Boy George had asked him? Do you know what? I mean, it had been decades since I'd actually read the whole of the thing that you put up on the site there, Mm -hmm. and it's... You know, it's not, it's not a piece of writing for a start. It's me being confronted with a George Michael who was in no way the fabulous George mm-hmm. that I wanted and needed him to be. Right. Mm. So I shoehorned a quite a conflicted interview and a conflicted man into this concept to try and jolly it up and yeah. to jolly him up. And I think that was really very naive and it's actually quite... It's a bit of a cringe for me to read that now, to right. be honest. But I was 22 years yeah, of yeah, age. yeah, yeah. yeah. And he was in this incredibly serious frame of mind. And obviously what was going on in his private life, I mean, and who... I just come bowling in and just, you know, <laughs> just talk to him about the most personal thing in his life. Mm. And I could tell that he was really taken aback. Yeah. And, well, as, as we can hear from, yeah. from, from that clip there, he, that would have rattled him for the rest of the day, if yes. not quite some time. Oh, I mean, and it, I feel terrible about that because we all <laughs> love George. I mean, it's, it's a very interesting interview that, that he talks about his split with Simon Napier Bell and Jazz Summers, his previous management. And he talks actually quite a lot about politics because they'd had that, the Wham had done that notorious miners' benefit where they're mined and yeah. they got torn to pieces for it. Yeah, yeah. And he, so he talks about that and his running with Arthur Scargill, his dismissal of Red Wedge. But he's very interesting about his, the very early days. And now... Careless Whispers was a song which means something. Is it Careless Whispers which is... Well, it's just a brilliant song. Yeah, but... well, there's a very funny scene in your new book, Same Old Girl. <laughs> right She's towards Jackson. the end. <laughs> when um, I think you're on the operating table and Careless Whispers is Oh, crikey. Quite... <laughs> yes. George came to my rescue when they were playing. Not to drag you back to that, but it was, it was a very, you put it very funnily. So this is basically we'll talk more about that. This is him bit. talking about his his kind of fan background and his first cutting his first demo. <laughs> you listen to most people who become really big stars and they they usually have something really pretty there's usually some big missing link in their family life um and mine was so secure you know it was so stable i felt so loved at home that i don't really understand why i had this kind of burning ambition but um but i did and the 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 excitement was 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 fame and also getting to hear the things that i'd had in my head for years and years actually committed to tape Mm. And I mean, I remember the first time um, I did a proper kind of 16-track demo, and we did Careless Whisper and uh, Club Tropicana and Wamra, and I was just totally, I was like delirious for a week because all the things that I'd had rolling around in my my head actually worked together, and I knew that they, and I finally found out that they were what I thought they were, which was really good songs. You know, I thought, well, I think are really good songs, and um, but at least, but I knew that they were something that deserved hearing and there were things that people would like. Wow, Careless Whisper is one of the greatest pop songs ever. It's fabulous. Written. It is a it's wonderful, absolutely, wonderful it's one of the immortals, yeah, you know. Yeah. I mean, this is the, you were interviewing him. Uh, Adam was interviewing him around the release of Faith, which is his first That's solo right. album. 
uh, which is kind of, I guess, one of the reasons why he's very ner- well. This thing about being announced by Boy George, his first solo album, his previous two singles hadn't done fantastically well. I believe, I'm not sure. But it's a big thing for him, his first set of albums, isn't it? So It's enormous. Yeah. Of course it is. And there was a lot of money behind it and yeah, all of yeah. those things. So pressure from his label and all of those things. Yeah. Like, it came to obviously fall out with his label and you know, turning yeah. it on. But yeah, it was an enormous thing. And Smash Hits was enormous at the time. And <laughs> what can you do? <laughs> so what's done is done. <laughs> and I do, I, I, I say I'm not with the band. Sorry about that, George. <laughs> <laughs> it is still a funny piece, though. The, the I mean, it's a snapshot of him, you know, at that time. And it was just, it's, it was amusing to me uh, to see him talking about how much he couldn't stand Top of the Pops anymore and things right. like that. And indeed, he wasn't going to go on anymore. Yeah, yeah, mm. yeah. And things yeah. like that. But you're he, right. He, he loathed the media already by then. Yeah. Yeah, you know? you're right that he was very serious in this in this interview in this audio throughout. You know, he's quite earnest and yeah. yes, quite concerned. Wants with to be taken seriously, being taken seriously, but also being authentic and not being concerned with the whole yeah. fame thing. In a, in a, yes, in a way, and it was it? like he was, you know, he was, he was just saying, I mean, "Pop, pop, pop, really is 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 trivial to me now." Yeah. And being from Smash Hits, so you couldn't yeah. really allow that to happen. <laughs> 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 saying all the wrong things, George. <laughs> He, he's very proud of what he did with Wham, with like exception of a couple of songs. He he actually you know he's still very as proud, proud as of it. As he should stuff. be, yeah, yeah, absolutely. It's a very amusing bit in the interview where he talks about the Freudian analysis of father figure. Wow. The, the, <laughs> yeah. Which is a beautiful song. Yeah. Oh, you know his voice. Oh. He, he does talk quite a lot in the interview about being hounded by the tabloid press, and it's quite interesting because I recently posted a couple of William Shaw articles, which is like about the Beastie Boys at Montreux pop festival right. where the, the press made up stories about them left right and centre about them like attacking small children and things like that they you would know. do yeah yeah they would do when did you leave Smash what year did you I left the editorial staff in 1990 and went freelance right. um, across whatever magazines would be willing to employ mm-hmm. me. So I still worked for Smash Hits as a freelancer mm-hmm. for the next maybe three-ish years right. before um, I started working for the enemy. But as a freelancer from 94 onwards. Right, right. So, um, but, but yeah, but I had four years on staff at Smash Hits and then three maybe yeah. coming up four. How do you thought, I mean, as a, as a freelancer, were you in the enemy office much or was it fairly remote sort of activity? It was remote. I didn't really, I didn't really want to go in much, to be honest with you. It yeah. was, um, you know, it was, it was very blokey. Yeah. Mm. And it was all a bit. I don't know. It wasn't really the kind of atmosphere that was particularly uh, <laughs> women friendly, right. shall we say? Yeah. Um, I'm sadly unsurprising, you know. Yeah. But but but. Yeah. Um, but I just got on with. That. I was. I, more than happy to just yeah. get, you know, they gave me loads of really great work to do. Mm. Mm. And I just, um, I just did it and tried to, you know, carve my own voice, I suppose, but, you know, within um, the the paper. And, sure. and they were very, very supportive to me. In the end, I was there for quite a while, yeah. you know. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, and we're running your Prince interview. It's, just, it's a shame Barney isn't here because he had exactly the same experience of no tape recorders, no notebooks wow. sort of stuff. He wasn't on that trip, though, was he? I don't know. Yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm not sure. But, but so, yes, yeah, so t- t- tell us about... <laughs> Talking to Prince. Oh, crikey. In 1996, and he was, um, he was, this was post the slave written on his cheek right. years. Right, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, because he'd fallen out with Warners because they owned the master tapes to his music yes. and he wasn't having that, and fair enough. Yeah. 
So he was now, he turned his back on being Prince. He was now the artist formerly known as Prince yep. Tapcalf. Is that right? <laughs> um, and in, to, to celebrate his release from yeah. prison, as yeah. it were, he was putting out his, um, it was a three CD oh, um, album, wasn't it, um, called Emancipation. Yeah. And he had invited the world's press to come to Minneapolis, to Paisley Park, yeah. to see him play live for a start maybe only about 40 minutes or so. Mm -hmm. And then a few select publications from around the world would have a 15-minute interview with him. And there would be no um, notes taken whatsoever and there would be no recording devices whatsoever. He always used to say, you will remember anything that is important. (laughs) No stress there then. Um, But as time went on, he changed his mind. He changed his mind about two things. He would no longer have any of the photographers take his photograph, Mm -hmm. which he was allowing beforehand. But he was now going to give the few, the handful of reporters, um, half an hour, mm-hmm. but still no recording devices, but we were allowed to take notes. Right. I mean, he once, he was so mad in all the good ways that you want of a magnificent <laughs> global pop entity like that. He once banned the asking of questions, which I think, just think is absolutely hilarious. <laughs> that is brilliant. That is <laughs> so good. That's what you want, isn't it, really? Well, thankfully, not in my case yeah, yeah. for that time. But, um, but yeah, so we all get there and... He does his, you know, Paisley Park has newly been uh, refurbished because he is now married to Mighty. Who's just called. given birth. Yes, they right? have They have a very new son and the Tabloid Press have reported that there's something very badly wrong with his son. Which was true. Which was true. I think the son were the only tabloid from Britain. So I knew that they had the most difficult task there because they had to ask the tabloid questions right, about, you know, how's your son or yeah. something about yeah. fatherhood anyway. Yeah. And there was the press conference happened, and the guy from the Sun completely fluffed his line. I remember that. How's f- 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 fatherhood? Prince he managed to get out. <laughs> managed to get out, Oof. and Prince was entirely cool about it. Right. And he said, "Of course, it's wonderful. I, I built a crib here when he was born. Blah blah." But I think actually his son was was about to die. I think yeah, at that time. Yeah, it didn't it was, last long. But that's really yes, nice, um, but he went ahead and did his promo anyway. I yeah. suppose it had been such a, a long time in the in the in, in the schedule. Yeah. So I mean, it's shocking to think that the Prince and George Michael both dying so young. I mean, same Prince, year too. That's that's, that's right, wasn't it? Yeah. Uh, and Prince directly result of what's fentanyl is a is a, um, a, a, a years um, of dancing on heels leading to a, an addiction to, to painkillers. Painkillers, basically. Which is now the biggest killer oh, in people under 50 in America yeah. today. And then, you know, dear old George kind of disappeared into a massive kind of cloud of weed smoke, didn't yeah. he, for a number of years. And he crashed his car in, like, you know, Hampstead or Highgate or something like that. He did that. all of those things. He became an absolutely extraordinary maverick, didn't he? <laughs> That's one word for it, I suppose. But he did. He yeah. was he was a loose cannon, yeah, man. Yeah. And in all the good ways and um, how dreadful that actually... It wasn't so funny in the end. No, mm. no. You know, that was young. What was he, 53 or something? Oh, that's terrible. I mean, you know. Yeah, no, and all that. He had so much more to give, did he not? Yes. And, you know, never mind, I'm, not, I'm just I'm speaking as a fan, never mind his family and his partner and all, yeah, all yeah, the rest yeah. of it, you know. It was, it was absolutely dreadful. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I watched the documentary recently about the the, 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 the cottaging incident in Los Angeles. And it's fascinating to see how he turned what could have been a disaster completely round by doing that amazing television interview where he's extraordinarily funny and honest about himself. Yes, yeah. You know, it's such a bright guy. And it's, it's, it's... Very smart, very funny, fantastically indiscreet about a lot of things. <laughs> <laughs> and again, that's what you want, isn't it, really? You would love Absolutely. to have met him in those years, you yeah. know. 
Yeah. yeah. Yep. Enemy was also, you were there, coincided with the Britpop years. We're running your 2001 massive Oasis feature from September. Oh, Oasis, enormous weird way, punk we? rock, none of that weird <laughs> fucking radio hit shite. <laughs> Bollocks, I believe he said. <laughs> oh, yeah, bollocks. <laughs> no, no, I mean, fucking Radiohead bollocks. <laughs> uh, I mean, Britpop, I mean, did you like Britpop as a general? I had an absolute ball. Yeah. I really did. I was a huge Oasis fan. I got hugely involved in the uh, in the battle of yeah. the band. And, yeah. of course, I, did, I, I took a side. Um, <laughs> but I had plenty of time for, for most of Blood. Damon and I, we would have our moments with each other. Yes. Because yes. he was he was a spiky fellow, yeah, he'd yeah. be the first person to say so. Yeah, you know, but you know, many yeah. conversations over the over that period with uh, I, 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 with I, all of them. I probably took the. I mean, I saw them about a week and a half apart in Christmas towards the end of nineteen ninety five Oasis at Earl's Court and Blur at Wembley Arena, and I, I said I really loved Blur partly because they had many more girls in their crowd, and it felt like a party. Well, Oasis was like what well, I call it the Nuremberg Rally on Special Brew. And well, it was, indeed, it was very blokey. Yeah, yeah. But those were riotous years for yourself, weren't they? Glastonbury and they so on were. So. Yes, all of that. You know, the, <laughs> there's, I can see that there's some. Um, you know, it depends on your recollection, I suppose, but. You know, I remember being at Main Road, I was um, reporting for the enemy on, I was doing the Vox Pops. Mm-hmm. And even though it was really heavily blokey, it was funny. Yeah. And, you know, there's a big coach load of us mm. going up there. And it was just, it was just like a, it was a festival of Oasis, you know. Sure. But even, even, you know, the, the, the also van bands, even, I would even try, try my best to have a really good laugh with, you know, cast or whatever. Right. I mean, I wasn't interviewing really um, mm-hmm. the Gallaghers in those days. Mm-hmm. Because, you know, the boys wanted yes. to do it. And that's absolutely fine, you know. I did a lot of interviews with, with uh, Jarvis and Pop around that time as well, right. especially Jarvis. Yeah. I loved Oh, it. yeah. I mean, it was very, you know, there's a kind of an idea that it was a very black and white time, but I just see nothing but colour, yeah. yeah. to be honest. Maybe that's through more of a, a pop kind of perspective, because I can just see the 70s, I can see the oranges, I can see the sparkles and yeah. the glitter and all of those things. I mean, also the drugs worked at the time, didn't they? They, they did. You know, ecstasy was, a, <laughs> yes. was made for a cheerful time. Yeah, no, there was there, there was a lot going on, and a lot, yeah, well, the whole of dance music, that, that yes. was its own revolution at the time. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. You know, Underworld yeah. and all of that, the festivals, it was absolutely, you know, the superstar, superstar DJs and all of that. I mean, it was absolutely rollicking yeah, till, yeah. till dawn across the land. You know, it was, it was, it's, it's not a myth, it was all true. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> How do you look back then? I mean, because I mean, in this Oasis piece, they don't come over terribly well cracking jokes about, it's right after 9 11 and they're cracking jokes about. Noel, Noel crashing into the Twin Towers himself and that sort of thing. So how do, you, how do you look back on that, you know, how that rollicking sort of looks Well, it's funny you should say that, Jasper, because honest to God, on that day, it could be a generational thing. Mm. I realise that that looks like incredibly poor taste mm. now, but I'm telling you right now, that is one of the funniest 90 minutes yeah. I've ever been involved yeah. in in my life, honestly, because everyone was obviously in a heightened state. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Everyone, Noel absolutely had been up all night long. Mm. Um, I think it had about three hours sleep because we right. were just transfixed by the television. Yeah, yeah. As Noel said, we've all just we've been up all night watching people falling out of the fucking sky. Yes. Yeah. So, but from that, it just escalated into. I mean, you know, my task for 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 that particular day was to try and in a comedy way, in a comedy confrontation kind mm-hmm. of a way, try and give them a really hard time because be here now was so dreadful. 
Yes. <laughs> but then this happened, something actually dreadful mm-hmm. in the world. So that all went out the window. Right, yeah. So I still tried to do what I originally intended to do. And, you know, Liam was having a bit of an attitude about that. And they were kind of going along with it to a certain extent. But then it tipped over into something else. And Noel just kind of ran with taking the culture apart. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Everything around him, whether it be Eminem whether it be David Beckham being the most famous man in the country and, and what, what football had become. And it was when he shouted, the man has taken over the world. That, I think, is when he got up out of his seat and pretended that he, that he was a plane flying flying into the towers right. and all this kind of thing. And that was, to, to be in that studio then was nothing but crying with laughter, to be honest yeah. with you. We were all absolutely roaring because yeah. it was... It was preposterous. He just kept... He, it was pure stand-up comedy, yeah, yeah. actually. Yeah, yeah. You know, taking yeah. the absolute backside out of absolutely everything available to him. Yeah. You know? But, yeah. It's, it's funny, looking back... I mean, this morning I just looked on Wikipedia to see when did they break up, and it's actually seven years later, 2008, they broke up. Yeah. But, in a way, they should have broken up two years before... Well, when, when, when Noel basically kind of hit Liam, you know... In 1998 or something, maybe they should have just called it a day then. Yes, was that the guitar over the head and yeah. a tangerine went flying across the room or something? <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, they, 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 they really, you could say they had maybe two good albums in them, which is what most bands have, you know. You know they well, certainly made the most of those two albums, you know. They really did. In yeah. the spirit yeah. of the time, certainly. <laughs> happened i mean in terms of as you as a writer where did you go to let's say post enemy and so on and so forth because the music press died under your feet didn't it it did um i could sense everything was changing well exactly as noel had said Mm -hmm. you know the man has taken over the world everything felt very very corporate all of a sudden right and it really was all of a sudden yeah the enemy was changing. It kept on changing its design. Yeah. It kept on changing its remit. Everybody, we were told to have an agenda, and it was all about just trying to get whoever it was we were interviewing to say something about the strokes for a while. Right. And it was all just like, you were just advertising ourselves. It was yeah. to do with feeding heat magazines, headlines, mm-hmm. and it always just, something's happened here that's very, mm. very, the, the planes have shifted yeah. in a really big way. The big stars all had aggressive PR people working with them. The, the the interview situation was always much more uncontrolled and so on yeah, and so forth. Yes, the control yeah. is exactly it. We just felt like we were all, and I spoke to many journalists about it at the time, we just felt like we were in advertising all of us all yeah. of a sudden. Yeah. We weren't being given the access anymore. No. And just as the years went on, it just incrementally just became more and more like that. Yes, yeah. Until, I mean, that's the reason that... It, I thought maybe there's a book in this with them, not with the man in the first place, because I started thinking about it properly in about 2011, and that's right. that's a whole decade of thinking yeah. about it. It's all <laughs> it's all over. Sure. Uh, but then the magazines, the many magazines had died by then. Whether it be the, the maker, the face, my shit sort of had gone. Obviously, yeah. I thought they're all dying now. Yeah, yeah. And that gave me the yeah yeah the, the platform for thinking. There's something in there's there's a book in this. Absolutely, absolutely. The internet. Just transforms of course. everything as, as, as well, and it continues to transform things. I yes, mean, technology has always transformed absolutely yeah. everything, hasn't it? And yeah. it, it, continue, it, it will continue to do uh, so. And the place of pop music and 
people's lives is different. It's 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 one of many many things. Rather than let's see, we all grew up in time when it's just all about music. That's all we had. Yeah, that was the center. That yeah. was your maypole, and everything else was dancing around it. Yeah. I mean, it's it's absolutely true. But yeah. now it's just one aspect of a vast spectrum of what you're going to call it entertainment. Yeah. I suppose. Mm. Um, One says in a slightly exhausted way. (laughs) You know, and everything's so visual now, the actual um, importance and belief in and need for the written word is not the young's culture anymore. It's it's usually something that's moving. It's a visual something. And that's inevitable. Yeah. Of course it's inevitable. I always say that I think probably the most widely quote-unquote red, although he's not red, music critic is a YouTuber called Anthony Fantano who does video reviews. of. He's doing album reviews in the traditional sense, right. but as you say, they're, they're moving. You know, he's, yeah, he's yeah. talking to camera. And, you know, he's pretty popular as far as music critics go. But, wow. but it's, it's, it's interesting to see that shift. We yeah. should perhaps talk about... Going back to the written word, same old girl, <laughs> your latest tome. Old school, more um, words. <laughs> which is, I believe, coming out... This week, is that right? It was out last week. Last week. It was out on the 27th, which was last week. 27th, Wednesday, yes. Fantastic. So, you know, it's not the cheeriest topic in the world as far as the content of the book. Yes, there are jokes within. No, but that's what I was going to say. There are jokes within because otherwise... None of us get up out of our beds every day. There's no jokes anywhere to be had, even about some of the uh, the darkest days we'll ever have. Yeah, you know? no, that's, that's what I was going to say. You know, you managed to take something very dark and difficult, which is being diagnosed with cancer, and make it a fun read, <laughs> dare I say it. <laughs> you know. All the laughs. Oh, it's absolutely <laughs> rollicking, let me tell you. Rollicking. No, but it's a, it's a wonderful book. It's a lovely book. You know, very moving book. How did you feel about kind of turning that whole experience into a book? Was it cathartic? Was it... It it certainly was. I mean, there were so many aspects of it. I thought, I mean, to begin with, I mean, it's nothing you're ever going to be thinking about is writing a book when in in the Mm. weeks and in the couple of months I thought I was going to die. Right. Um, But as soon as I knew I wasn't going to die because actual doctors are looking me in the eyes Mm -hmm. and telling me that you're treatable because it was caught early. Right. Then you know that you're going to go into this thing that they call the process. Right. And then I thought, I have absolutely no idea what that means. And the process was so extreme and acute and all of those things. And I thought, why are we all in the dark about what mm-hmm. chemotherapy is? Why are we in the dark about what this thing called the process actually is? I'm going to start writing this down. And as the weeks and months went past, some things, especially around, as I call them in the book, bathroom humiliations were so bad that I thought, I was texting my buddies to make them laugh because things were absolutely outrageously yeah. ridiculous, you know? And I yeah. thought, if, if, I, if I can make my pals laugh, mm-hmm. perhaps I can make... Yeah. Somebody out there in the universe laugh who perhaps is looking as I was to just kind of take the fear out of it. Yeah. Because of course it's going to be dreadful, but you just need to be incredibly patient. Yeah. You need to find a sense of humour in this or, mm-hmm. or you're going to be doomed, and that goes for anything in life. And the boot started to expand out of just that experience into how weird and preposterous it is mm. to, to be this age I, you know I, I'm well into my 50s now mm-hmm. it just sounds absolutely outrageous when it comes out of my mouth <laughs> and everything <laughs> starts changing for you you know your there'll be health scenarios yeah. if not for you for your family friends your partners yeah. your children whatever it might be something's coming for us all mm-hmm. if you are fortunate enough to get into in, into these years everything suddenly becomes very real. You're very aware of time in yeah. a way that you never were. You're very aware of not wasting it. Yeah. 
because it's running out. Yeah. You find yourself going to more funerals and weddings for us and things like that. You know, it's, it's all of those things. And as well, you you, you come to realise how precious the, the good stuff is. You think that you appreciated your friendships before. Mm-hmm. But my God, when they step up for you, when, when you're in trouble and they do it with a massive smile on their face, they're literally, you know, they'll be sending you their stupid jokes just like they always <laughs> did. And they'll turn up or they'll send you... And this was all through the pandemic as well, by the way. Yeah, so we right. were very isolated wow. from each what other. A, what a time for this. Yeah, but there they'd be on the Zooms. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Sometimes on the Zoom and I'm sitting in the hospital bed because I've been incarcerated with some dreadful infection or whatever. But there they are. Yeah, yeah. He, 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 and ho, ho, and on a, <laughs> on a Saturday night. And that's exactly what you want. Ugly because you want normality. Yeah, you know? I, I think I'm actually saw more of my family on Zoom during lockdown than I see in real life, you know. I exactly mean, that. Curiously, you know. Exactly that. And it was an enormous lesson in how the stuff that brings you most of the joy in life is the very, very it's, the, it's just the basic stuff. It really is. It's, yeah. it's, it's your mates, the love that you have in your life, whatever it is. Are you able to eat something, eat something at all yes. yeah. today? Because for a while I couldn't at all. Right. I couldn't even brush my teeth. I just wanted to demystify the dreadful things, but give it some kind of a, you know, you've got to come at it with a sense of humour. Otherwise, yeah. I would never have written about all of these things yeah. because it's uh, it's hardcore, but it's just, yeah. oh, please. You, you, you know, you've got you ought yeah. to find the horror in the... In, in the the, the humour. The, the humour and the yeah. horror, or you're doomed in life. But you know, yeah. I, I don't think I mean. you're incapable of writing without humour because it's, it runs through everything I've read of yours. You know, it's, it's, always, it's, it's always there. <laughs> no, it, 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 it's true, though. Is it know. really? God bless you. <laughs> Oh, yeah. Dear. Well, anyway, same old girl yeah. out now in yes. all good bookshops and also Amazon, as I'm fond of saying. Cause yes. I, I don't rate Amazon <laughs> as a good bookshop. No, no. Um, <laughs> a bad experience all round. It's there, and it's and it's it's great. Yeah. So go out and get it. What next? Uh, well, first of all, um, we went to, we're talking about Blur and so on. The long read on the site this week's a big Dave Benham interview with Damon Alban, your your man, uh, <laughs> from the seventh of May, nineteen ninety four. Very. A very good read. Uh, we've also we're marking Donna Summer the, the the release of the documentary about Donna Summer. Name I have here somewhere. He said, "Yes, um, Doctor, she loved to love you." By made by her daughter, and apparently it's riveting. I'm really looking forward to seeing that. So we've got a John Abbey interview from Blues and Soul in 1976. Robin Katz, 1979, and a very interesting article by David Toopin, The Wire, where he talks to Giorgio Moroder about Love to Love You, Baby, and I Feel Love. So that's all good stuff. Giorgio Moroder, who's had kind of a renaissance in, in life, have, you know, having been featured on a Daft Punk record, telling his sort of life story, yeah. and then, and then he's, he's sort of now basically playing festivals again at the age of, like, I don't know, eighty or something, which oh, is fabulous. which is kind That's of kind want, of fantastic. You know, yeah, yeah it's not, just, not, not going to happen to me. <laughs> <laughs> I knew that could be a sound of the future, but I didn't realize how much the impact would be. My name is Giovanni Giorgio, but everybody calls me Giorgio. Just to mark Gordon Lightfoot's death, we've got uh, a couple of pieces. Uh, Georgia Straits, Rick McGrath and uh, Mike Quigley interview him in 1970, so that's pretty good stuff. And we have a profile from his biographer, Nicholas Jennings, 50 years later. Did Gordon Lightfoot mean anything to you as a, as a singer-songwriter? Uh, not from the olden days. Mm-hmm. 
I've remembered now, actually, it was through, in those rollicking Britpop years, Pulp were around a lot and we'd see a few of them around and about in various, even at parties and things like that. And it was def. I'm pretty certain it was Jarvis. Maybe it was at a club, but you wouldn't play this at a club. But, but anyway, it was definitely Gordon Lightfoot's If You Could Read My Mind right. came to me via him somehow. <laughs> and I thought I that, that song was absolutely so beautiful and I played it and played it and played it at three o'clock in the morning much to my flatmate's absolute <laughs> horror uh, through the, the the middle of the 90s if I wasn't playing Champagne Supernova Fantastic. at a thousand decibels and I would be singing my head off I absolutely loved it and it moves me still actually That's beautiful song but no in terms of him before that and any other any any other of his yeah. possibly magnificent songs I have no idea I think he was a sort of songwriter songwriter and Bob Dylan was a big fan of his um, people like Joni Mitchell you know Canadian Singer started off sort of the tail end of the folk boom in the early 60s and then was picked up by Warner's in 1970, which would be right at the heart of that singer-songwriter Warner Brothers culture. So in 84, he, he, he struggled with alcoholism for a number of years, gave it up in 1982. One of the obituaries I read pointed out that in giving it up, he became far less interesting as a singer. <laughs> <laughs> Dot. The Lord giveth, the Lord taketh away. <laughs> dot, dot, dot. <laughs> if you could read my mind, love, what a tale my thoughts could tell. Just like an old time movie about a ghost from a wishing well in a castle dark. There was one thing I wanted to ask, yes. actually, kind of in the on the broader picture of interviewing and music writing, which is that. In Same Old Girl, you start off with talking about interviewing Kylie Minogue. Yes. And you interviewed her a number of times, and you interviewed a number of musicians a number of times throughout their career. And I was sort of wondering how you interpret that relationship between interviewer and musician and how that develops across, across a period of years. Well, you're never the pop star's friend. I think that's initially why I called... I'm not with the band, I'm not with the band, because you're not with mm. the band. Mm. You're really not. Yeah. Pamela was. She was. <laughs> <laughs> that was never my experience. Never my experience. I think if, if it's going to be multiple times over a certain amount of time, I think you, you certainly develop trust. Yeah. And that can be vital, to be honest with you, in terms of people actually, you know, opening up to you and all of those things. You will certainly be able to, to go deeper mm-hmm. you know, with your layers as time goes on. If someone actually knows what you've written about them before, they know you're not coming, you know, there's no, you're not coming at them with any kind of weird agenda or anything sure. like that. So, so that does develop, certainly. Mm. That does develop. Because then you, you muse on, on the nature of fame, and it's something we've touched on a couple of times throughout this conversation, and you muse on how it's changed. You know, fame is now sort of fame for fame's sake in many respects, and that's kind of a, an interesting shift. But, yeah, I, it's a sort of a dead-end thought there. But <laughs> <laughs> No, it's true. The thing um, that struck me more than anything, I think it was on the day that, um, that Caroline Flack died, and the way the press had treated her was so appalling. Mm. Um, and I was musing in my hospital bed because I was yet again incarcerated that particular week. And I thought, social media has changed everything as well as mm. the nature of the tabloids. And it really looks like fun just isn't really all that much f- fun yeah. Yeah. anymore. Um, really for anyone, it seems to me. And a lot of the really big stars, certainly if, you know, the mainstream sites, they, they're not going to do interviews anymore. No. Because, you know, they're just going to, they're, they're, just, they're just there to create a massive you know, a spectacular headline, some sensationalist thing about, you know, probably a mental health issue, 
a food disorder, yeah. a Twitter spat, yeah. or whatever it might be. And can you imagine yeah. the pressure and weirdness? And all? yeah, it's just, it's just. Where, where's, where are the larks? Yes, I mean, where I think that's absolutely larks? true. And also, that if you're an artist now, you're obliged to have a social media presence. Yes, which is worse than a double-edged sword. It's a single-edged sword going for your throat. You know, you'll get trolled. You'll get all of that sort all of stuff. Of and, and, it, and it just must. Wear down your spirit. Very fast. I think about someone like Taylor Swift, who I have a lot of time for, is, is that that you know she's she's been kind of torn to pieces. In, Absolutely, you know. yeah. I mean, hashtag Taylor Swift is dead, wasn't it in oh, twenty tw- whenever it was? I mean, it really was. Imagine, yeah. she's a human being for uh, crying yeah. out loud, you know. And, and and yeah, she's you know she's she's been a you know she's a robust person. Yes, but mm. but. But, but come on, and they don't, you know, and, and the trolls, that's their sport. Well, in talking know. about less than robust people, it's um, going to what's go, gone on the site in the last couple of weeks. And the very first thing I want to talk about is Maureen Cleave and Evening Standard talking to Jet Harris literally a couple of weeks after the car crash, which ended his career. He basically fell to pieces, had a nervous breakdown. And he said, I'm scared, I'm frightened. I can't face an audience again. And that's the bloody truth. It's my head on account of the accident and also of my mind. This is really something. It's interviewing a guy. His girlfriend was in her crash. She was a singer herself. Her name entirely escapes me. It was the end of her career too. Uh, and in a way, it was the first tabloidization of a, of pop of a pop star. The, the, treat, the treatment of it. Nineteen sixty three. Um, so as much as we talk about how much things have changed. <laughs> well, there you go. Yeah. There you go. Oh, how tragic. Yeah, we've we'll um, been involved in this horror forever, <laughs> <laughs> making people's lives a misery for a living since, you know. Yes, yeah. <laughs> Moving a long way forward to 1992, Soundgarden's Chris Cornell to Paul Elliott in Kerrang. Freddie Mercury was a great rock star, arrogant and flamboyant. His lifestyle was almost too precarious to support a life. Sammy Hagar does push-ups and ride, rides bicycles. That's not a rock star, which is. You know, Chris Cornell, another <laughs> tra- tragic young death. You know, Indeed. We've got developing a bit of a theme here. We are. Right. <laughs> 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 the road is strewn with the body strewn. Flags at half mast yes. around the back pages office. Um, but this week, Smokey Robinson to Judith Sims, 1975, just at the time when his A Quiet Storm album became, came out, which revived his solo career after... He said, women make show business. Men contribute to the thing, but women actually make show business happen. Which I think is kind of... I mean, he's talking about the fans, but it's, it's, right. it's, a, it's a broad point. I think that's, that's pretty good. Yeah, when I was off, that is no longer doing shows, I saw more shows than I've ever seen. And everybody was loud. The music was loud. The singer had to be loud. It gave me the idea that somebody had to be quiet. So that's, that's Quiet Storm. Soft and warm. Quiet as when flowers talk at break of dawn, break of dawn. What else have we got? Oh, well, Morrissey, Stephen Daly for Spin 1991. I mean, Morrissey repels me, but I love reading interviews with him because... They're, they're, oh, his interviews were the greatest. We were all sprinting down the road. Yes. In the olden days, yeah, yeah, yeah. And they still exist and they're still as great to this day. I mean, that is, you, you know... It's, yeah. What's happened is what's happened, yeah, and yeah. Uh, but nothing will change 
the impact that had on us as young people. You know? Sure. Yeah. Uh, and so he says, um, talking about the cocktail twins, they make me vomit on sight. I think there's a right way and a wrong way, and I think the cocktail twins have always applauded themselves for doing it the wrong way. They're outstandingly unappealing on every human level. They look awful, their interviews are awful, and their records are just utter stupidity. So he doesn't like the Copto twins. Does then. he not? <laughs> Holding back as if. Yeah. And then this is a good sense because uh, uh, Stephen Daly was asking questions about you know, writing songs like Bengali platforms and so on and so forth, which was the first hint that there was a side to Morris who has come. He says, England is not England in any real sense of the word. It has been internationalised, and that's screechingly evident wherever you look around the country. The English people are not strong enough to defend their sense of history. Patriotism doesn't really matter anymore. So I think England has died. I mean, it's all there already it's, in 1991. It's, 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 all, it's all there already. Jasper, have you got anything to... I've got a couple of things. I'll, I'll try and lighten, lighten the mood slightly. <laughs> Kate Mossman's My Secret Affair, Why 70s Power Pop is Unfashionably Cool Again. It's just a very funny little piece that she wrote in New Statesman, November 2012. A few weeks ago, I was at a party celebrating 60 years of Fred Perry. You got free drinks if you handed in four cardboard logos at the bar, and all the celebrities usually turn up to such dudes were there, like Mark... Like Mark Lamar. The soundtrack was mod. The jam, the lambrettas, the chords, purple hearts, all manner of things jerky, pulsating, pub rocky, punky and cool. Then suddenly my ears were full of warm 70s power pop. Why were they playing Boston? What is this expertly constructed, richly melodic and appealingly uncool material? I asked the DJ, poised to write the name down. This is my world by secret affair, he said. I thought you were going to tell me to turn it off like the last three people. (laughs) (laughs) It's just lovely. We had Kate on the podcast a, a while ago yeah. and she does take delight in all things not all things but lots of things traditionally uncool and this is another another area it's just a fun little piece yeah just reminded me actually that um, in that 1975 version of myself I forgot to mention ABBA yes ABBA please I have to say I'm the That's o- absolutely I apologise to the, <laughs> to the, <laughs> to the seen, universe for that have you seen the virtual ABBA I have did you enjoy it I absolutely loved it. It was a colossal party, but there did feel like there was a detachment there. Did you? Yeah, no, I didn't. I'm, I'm, you know, it's terrible. I'm such a curmudgeon. But I felt they seemed weirdly dead behind the eyes, these well, three-dimensional were. They were holograms. <laughs> there was something about them which, where there was, like, there was nothing behind the surface of the face, and I, I found it kind of odd. But having said that, everyone around me was having the best time imaginable. <laughs> Yes, I mean, in terms of, you know, because I was there with, with my oldest friend, who's one of the threads throughout the whole of Same Old Girl, mm-hmm. and we were, she's a redhead uh, and I was a blonde, and we pretended that we were those two back in right. the 70s. Of course we did. Yeah, yeah. So it was a huge deal for us to see this thing, but it didn't, I don't, didn't feel emotionally no. involved. Mm-hmm. We just had such an extraordinary party. Yeah, yeah. Um, and it was great fun, and we danced and we sang like maniacs and all of those things that you'd expect, but in terms of actually doing something to your heart... Mm-hmm. So your, I didn't mind that. But, but your experience and mine weren't dissimilar. I mean, my reading of it is slightly different, the dead behind the eyes sort of thing, but it, it's... The, the, it didn't feel dead to me in any way, but I can... 
I can see what you mean, mm-hmm. but in terms of, I, I, I can only just, maybe that's what you mean is the emotional connection, yes. but, but you know, it certainly felt like the future, I'll tell you well, that much. This, this is the start of it, don't yeah. you think? Yeah, I, th- I think a lot of artists, especially given the way that they've been treated and so on and so forth, it's, it's part of their removal of their real selves from the process. Don't you think that any of the giants would do this if they were able to, would Paul McCartney give permission? Who knows? Mm. I think that right now what the barrier do, but is... You need the real people, I suppose, to have the technology involved. But it's certainly something is happening here and yeah. it will be unrecognisable yeah. to yeah. us. At the no. moment, I think the barrier decade, is, is cost. But I think I think it's it's likely that there'll be more of that yeah. type of thing. And those costs always plummet. Yeah, of course. Yes. Of course. I think we lastly. Just oh, sorry. Yeah, yeah. So I have one more piece. Lastly, to mention, which is just because I want to talk about the artist Christian Scott, or now known as Chief Zian Atunda Adjua, who's a jazz trumpeter who I really, really enjoy. And so a few years ago, I profiled him for a student magazine that I wrote for at the time, and. I think he's really great, and I wanted to pick up on it as well because you talk at the end of Same Old Girl, you talk about how now you've suddenly discovered a passion for jazz, <laughs> which is fun. But but I think he's just fantastic. I don't know if you if you're aware of him, but he's he's really. Yes, I'm still learning. He's really <laughs> really great. He straddles this sort of hip hop, jazz, contemporary jazz kind of space and he plays this incredible reverse flugelhorn <laughs> which is a kind of bit like Dizzy Gillespie's trumpet with the upturned yeah, bell yeah. but engineered and different and also a thing called a sirenette which as far as I can tell is just an in- instrument he had invented mm-hmm. for himself so he's a really really cool dude and his, his album Stretch Music which was out at the time it does exactly that it stretches music between you know post-bop funk kind of ethereal sort of keyboardy stuff it's it's just great so i don't know if you've you mark you you haven't you'll uh, have to play me something you anyway so i just I'll nod my head yeah, yeah. this is okay. our <laughs> we'll sound the first article klaxon for for christian scott atunda adjua and conclude on that note yeah then. so well many many thanks sylvia for coming in it's been well, huge fun thank you very much to to you two and cheers it's, it's been a pleasure good to be in your uh, magnificent in a slightly clammy back it's office it's, it really is my entire life all of our lives are in here it's mental yeah. and uh, we'll be back in a fortnight with Cliff Jones is that correct I believe, I believe so I believe Cliff so. Jones of Gay Dad of uh, the Gay Dad of yes. the Gay Dad oh crikey so we've got the Gay Dad coming oh to crikey I had, had, had a bit of an experience with, uh, with Did Cliff you? Jones from the Gay Dad Did you tell? tell us over the road in the park <laughs> 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 and on that note, we'll, we'll say goodbye. Bye. Bye. <laughs> that concludes episode 151 of the Rocks Back Pages podcast. Many thanks to special guest Sylvia Patterson. Same Old Girl is published by Fleet and available now in all good bookshops. And also Amazon. The host was Mark Pringle, and it was co-hosted and produced by Jasper Murison Bowie. The Rocks Black Pages podcast is part of the Pantheon Podcast Network. You can find thousands of articles, as well as hundreds of full-length audio interviews, at rocksblackpages.com. Listener.